welcome, or velkommen, as we would say in Norwegian, to The Nordics Unveiled. I am Ernest Elbjørg and I hope you will join my exploration of Nordic. From mythology and folk traditions to lyrical, melancholic, and often cautiously optimistic are only a few characters of Nordic. In a series of episodes, I will be joined by inspiring guests trying to break a few stereotypes and answer the question of what is typically Nordic? To learn more about conversations and guests, subscribe to The Nordics Unveiled on your favorite podcast provider or follow me on my Instagram, Facebook or Twitter account. This is The Nordics Unveiled. I am thrilled to welcome my guest today, Dr. Knut Jörgott, renowned Norwegian art historian and well-respected curator, previously working as a director at the Northern Norway Art Museum in Tromsø, the National Gallery in Oslo, and founding director of Kunsthall Svalbard. He is today heading the Nordic Institute of Art, which he co-founded in 2017. Jörgott is a highly respected curator who has curated several exhibitions in Norway and internationally. Dr. Jörgott is a leading scholar on Nordic and European 19th century art, including romantic landscape painting and history painting. He is the perfect guest to help us unveil on what is typically Nordic. I just want to say I'm so grateful and so happy that you're here today and joining my podcast. Thank you very much, Elbia. I'm very happy to be here. And you are a leading expert um, in Nordic and European art in the 19th century, mm-hmm. and I am so curious to know what attracted you to this particular period in the first place. Oh God, that was a big question. Yes. I thought we were going to talk about nice things such as paintings of mountains <laughs> and dark forests and so forth. Well, I mean, I've always been interested in art or rather in the arts ever since I was uh, I was a child. I had a mother who was an artist and also thought art herself, both textile, but also painting and graphic works. And then on the other hand, I had a father who was very into history. I also grew up on a family farm outside of Oslo, you know, and uh, in the Norwegian countryside. So, so tradition was always with me. And uh, I just started to look at art, read books at a very early stage. I went to the National Gallery and Museums and Galleries with my mother from when I was four or five years old. (laughs) Uh, And then at one stage I decided that art history would be a nice way to to keep up that interest. And I then I had to, you know, eventually decide what would be my speciality. And I was I didn't really start to write and research on Nordic art so much. I was more interested in European and British art, in Mm. symbolism, in decadence, the British pre-Raphaelites in particular. So I I studied for a period in in London at the Courtauld and wrote my my first dissertation on the pre-Raphaelites. But, you know, coming back to Norway, there wasn't too much of an interest in that. And I was lucky enough to to get a job at the National Gallery where I stayed for many years. And... uh, of course, then Norwegian and Scandinavian art came more to the forefront. And also when I moved to the north, to, to Tromsø, to North Norway, uh, my interest grew in the artists that had depicted that part of the world and, and the, the, the image, the very image of the north. Mm. So you can say that has become more and more uh, one of my areas of focus. 
That's, uh, when you say image of the North, what do you have in mind then? Oh, yeah, that, that's another big question. Yeah. You, you found a big question, <laughs> <Yeah>. Sarberg. <laughs> well, I mean, we have really many images of the North. What we, do we mean by the North? Is it just generally the Nordic region, Norden? Uh, is it the individual countries of the Nordic region? You know, the Swedish national anthem, they have the line, I, jag vill leva, jag vill dö i Norden. I will live, I will die in the North. Mm. But for the Swedes, the North is equivalent with Sweden. Yes. And I think that goes for many of the Nordic countries that, you know, when we talk about the North, we mean our own country, really. But then you, of course, have the far North, mm. Uh, the Arctic, as we like to call it today, uh, you know, up uh, above the polar circle, Svalbard, Spitsbergen, the North Pole, and the image of, well, really both Scandinavia, but in particular the Arctic, has always been surrounded by mystery. It has been seen as a place of danger, dark place, yeah. Ultima Thule. Hmm. If you look at old maps, you know, from the <laughs> 1600s and, and later, the north, that means, and with the north, I still mean about Scandinavia, but the Arctic in particular, yeah. uh, the north is surrounded by the strange beasts. You know, they might be whales or big fishes, but some of them also look like sea monsters or sea serpents. <laughs> and yeah, that, of course, yeah. then we can jump to the present day. We have just had a very popular television series called Game of Thrones. Yeah. And there, the north again mm. appears as a place of danger, of mystery, where mm. uh, evil creatures come from to destroy the world. Yeah. So, so this is a, mm. uh, a, an image of the North that lingers on still today, I think. It's quite a far away from, I would say maybe one of the icons, iconic um, paintings we have from Norway is Sibriurefara in Hardanger, yes. which is very, very national romantic without doubt it's very light it's very mm. optimistic it's so mm. uh, you know celebrating the wedding it's fjords and mountains and very um almost a bit cliche in a way but that's also norway wouldn't you say that is the other aspect of norway and of mm. course scandinavia and you also have the music there folk, the folk music your your colleague ule bull was <laughs> the original fiddler in in the boat right. uh, but traditionally before the mid-19th century, the image of the North was really uh, dominated by this uh, darkness. Uh, mm. And that, that that is, of course, several reasons. One reason is, of course, nature itself. I mean, everybody who has grown up in Norway knows that uh, Norway, Scandinavia, nature in general is can be dangerous. Mm. I mean, look at the tourists going to Spitsberg and getting threatened by polar bears, but also going for a hike in the mountains. If you don't know your way, can be pretty dangerous. Right. And everybody has, li everybody who have lived along the coast know that you know that the sea is very dangerous. Mm -hmm. But in the 18th century, this was uh, became a category, as uh, an aesthetic category. A sort of genre mm. within the arts, the sublime they called it. Mm. That was when the when the danger of it could be nature, but it could also be other things. Uh, fear became interesting mm. for the arts, and that lingered on into the Romantic period. And when 
you know, the romantic artists started to paint Norwegian and Scandinavian nature. It was originally the wild uh, aspects of the forest, the mountains, the mm. sea that uh, they concentrated on. But then at one point, I think probably to do with a new national romantic movement uh, closer to the mid-19th century, uh, they wanted to present another image of Norway as a sunny, idyllic place. And that, of course, I think dominated for parts of the 19th century, you know, also late 19th century Skagen Maler, the Skagen painters. Uh, mm. And still, when you talk about Nordic art outside the, the region, mm. people still want happy, sunny landscapes. <laughs> but then you yeah, have, exactly. then it's so interesting to see that this other tradition, uh, the mm. tradition of uh, the darkness of Nordic nature and culture has co- come back with what is known as Nordic noir. Mm. That's very true. And it really has been spreading to uh, so many different genres and so many different expressions. I mean, it's just looking into, we spoke briefly about how you grew up and I can also tell from how I grew up I mean we really were so immersed by nature I mean how can you not be because it's around you all the time and also one thing is the um, the wonderful aspect of having nature so close but it is also very you really need to know how nature works and what's happening and it's maybe no wonder why nature became such a big inspiration for not only uh, the art community but also for music and for film I mean how many films don't we have who are in set in the Norwegian woods somewhere? <laughs> but it is really such a big um, force. And I think it's really fascinating to see, particularly when you look into the, the Arctic, do you see yes. so much of that intense um, darkness and, and force and, and, uh, and despair in many ways you can see in the expression. But do you think that's because they... Like, for instance, um, well, we'll get to names later, but some of the painters went to the really far north. Do you think they were shocked to find it being so harsh or were they prepared for it? Yes and no. Uh, I mean, the image of the Arctic was already established as being a a place, a barren landscape, a harsh Mm. landscape, rough, wild... Uh, because it had been depicted in by travelers, but it had also been depicted by artists and written about by authors who hadn't been there, but mm-hmm. who had created a vision of how they thought it was or how, they, how it should be. Mm-hmm. So, of course, the artists who started to travel up there in the 19th century, uh, most importantly the Norwegian Peder Balke, who traveled there in 1832, uh, they probably came with a preconception about how the Arctic landscape should be. Mm-hmm. But I still think, yes, you can call it a shock. At least it made a great impression on on an artist like Peder Balke. Yeah. And you've written a uh, fantastic book about Peder Balke. And it's really fascinating to see the expression um, he painted with. Um, one of the things that really um, was very striking to me, not only with him, but with maybe particularly in, in, in a lot of his paintings, that he used the motifs of the mountain a lot. Um, and in many ways, that is such a, a big uh, characteristic of Norway in particular. But why do you think the mountain became such a strong feature for many painters? Well, I mean, Balke, the, the mountain becomes more and more 
like a vision mm. in the distance. Uh, he had, of course, seen this landscape. One of the few at the time who had seen the, that landscape and depicted yeah. it. But in the long run, it was more the memory of that landscape. Yeah. So the, the whether it's a stormy sea, a lighthouse, a mountain, it becomes more like a vision or a dream, mm. uh, very much a romantic depiction of the north, but still emphasizing the strong forces of nature. While if we look at a painter like Johann Christian Dahl, who traveled the Norwegian mountains, mm. settled in Germany, of course, in Dresden, mm. made Norwegian landscape famous, but traveled in the mountains, depicted them. They're, they're much more detailed. And that, of course, is, those are the mountains of mid and western Norway. And there is a certain difference because Dahl had a more of a national program to his depiction of Norwegian landscape, mm. which Balke properly didn't. No. And, of course, nature in general became a very strong genre in Norway in a national program. I mean, other European countries had history painting. We had a little bit of that too, but not that much because we didn't have an academy. We didn't have uh, an ability, mm. as we discussed earlier. <laughs> uh, but landscape and folk life paintings really became the dominant uh, genres for a period, and they became sort of the vehicle to express a national identity. And, and I think that is why also the mountain in particular perhaps becomes so dominant in Norwegian art at this period. And the mountain mm. is Norway. Yeah. Uh, you know, when when the first parliament gathered, they swore by the mountain of Dovre. So, so it <laughs> yes. was a very strong symbol yeah. for the Norwegian. And, and then, of course, it's also, like you mentioned initially, the presence of nature. That's the other side of it. I mean, you have the symbolical, sometimes in political mm. meaning, but then you have the actual mountain, mm. the actual nature as a strong presence in yeah. people's lives. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And also just to, one thing is the how you navigate around a mountain, but also yeah. just in, it has so many metaphors also, how you can be centered whenever you have a mountain around. You can go to the top of the mountain, you see the whole world, or you can also use it as a metaphor of of uh, how to be able to climb the mountain and it gives a sense of being able to do anything you want in life. I mean, there are so many metaphors you can connect with the mountain. And I think in a, in a highly romantic artist like Pierre de Balke, that is very tangible, that, mm. you know, th this, this is a symbolic mountain as much as a real mountain, mm. a mountain that can symbolize aspects of people's lives, etc. Right. Uh, but when you mentioned climb the mountain, of course, these artists in the early 19th century, they also had to be mountaineers, to be mountain climbers, to be uh, to be explorers, traveling by sea to the far north or climbing the mountains. And very interesting is some of the first artists, they, they traveled in the company very often of scientists or cartographers. Right. Uh, mm. And they traveled, of course, because they wanted to map Norway, mapping the geography of the mountains and the coast which was, of course, also important from a national political point of view, uh, but also scientists who wanted to, to examine the different rocks, etc. So the artist became also part of a scientific project. Mm. And then, of course, they also needed 
people who knew the mountains. So in the paintings, you will very often see a little group of travelers. One can be the artist, the other might be a scientist or cartographer he's traveling together with. Right. It's very often a he, usually of a course. he. <laughs> uh, and then you will often have find a local person dressed in a folk costume, a local person, a guide who, who is uh, leading them through the mountains. Mm. And of course that was absolutely necessary because this was long before we had built all the roads, etc. Mm. across Norway. <laughs> and it was, it was really dangerous to, to cross a mountain unless you knew your way. Oh, absolutely. And it's so fascinating to think about how it was to travel at that point. I mean, today we are so used to that it's just, oh, it's just to travel. You just get there. Um, but at that point, and I, you mentioned Ole Bull a bit earlier, who was in many ways Norway's first superstar, I would say. Um, a fantastic yes. violinist and virtuoso yeah. who traveled the world. Um, and in the, the 1800s, that was not easy, let's say. And um, you had to cross, uh, you know, the sea, you had to get up on mountains. He traveled all, all around the continent. And it's when you went for a trip, it wasn't just see you next week. It was more like I see you maybe in one year. I don't know. It's, it's quite fascinating to see how much they wanted it and how much they went for it. It was not that easy. Traveling around Norway at that time was an expedition. Yeah. Uh, even if you just crossed the mountains from uh, from the capital, Christiania, as it was mm. then called, Oslo, to, to Bergen. Yeah. And even more so if you went f- further along. I mean, Dahl had settled in Dresden in Germany, and he came back to Norway something like five times during his his mm. lifetime. That, that says so something much. about how yeah. it doesn't sound like much to us today, but yeah. for him that was that was a lot because every each journey took several months. Yeah. You know, preparing, going to Copenhagen from sh- by ship from Copenhagen up to Norway, then across the mountains, uh, and um, you had yeah. to prepare everything. You needed people who could travel along with you. So it was really something of an expedition. And imagine if the maps you looked at were the ones with all the monsters. I imagine it would take even longer. Then you <laughs> would probably be a bit scared by yeah. going certain routes. <laughs> yes, yes. But of course, this was at a time that did start to have more proper maps. So, well, the early maps were pretty accurate too, mm. if we take away the monsters. Yeah. But but I mean, they knew that Scandinavia w- was there, that... Uh, and already from from around six, uh, the early 17th century, they knew about Spitsbergen, Svalbard. Mm. So 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 the maps were pretty accurate, but of course they had a bit fanciful aspects, like the monsters and and the strange beasts. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in the early 19th century, a more systematic mapping starts, and then of course you have maps that are reliable. You can travel by, you can navigate by. Mm. Uh, so that that uh, was probably important, and of course, this is a time where artists, not only in in uh, in uh, Norway, but uh, la- larger parts of the world, start to travel. In Europe, you have the so-called plein air artists, open air mm. artists, who tra- travel around Europe to find their subjects, mm. and also also in across the Atlantic, both in North and South America, uh, artists of the respective countries start to explore their own nature. Right. So so it's really mm. a part of something, even if we, we, we know it was a part of a, an identity project, national identity project for Norway, it was also part of uh, an international current. 
That's absolutely true. And actually what you point out there is very important, I think, to maybe talk a little bit about, you know, the early 19th century, Norway had just gotten out of, uh, or were close to getting out of, um, very, very long periods of being in unions with Sweden and with Denmark. Mm -hmm. Norway was maybe not a very, what can we say, had a, maybe at that point didn't have the longest academic tradition when it comes to the art, for instance. And how do you think that affected the expression at that time? Well, I mean, we did get our independence or rather certain autonomy from Denmark in 1814. And yeah. then we was, as we all know, forced into this union with uh, Sweden uh, for until 1905. Mm -hmm. And of course, Norway didn't have an art academy at that time. That, that came uh, in 1909. We did have a royal drawing school in the capital. There were a few other institutions that grew up during the 19th century, but most artists, painters, uh, visual artists, had to go abroad. Mm. So most of them went to Copenhagen yeah. as a starting point, and they they'd continued to do that also after 1814. That's mm. interesting. Only very few of them did go to the Academy in Stockholm, even mm. uh, if we were in that union with Sweden. But um, one of the few that did go to Stockholm was uh, Peder Balke, who was a private pupil of Sweden's leading landscape painter at the time, Carl mm. Johan Falkrans, before he later became a student of Dahl in Dresden. Mm -hmm. So, of course, and, and Dahl himself, he had studied in Copenhagen before he settled as a professor in Dresden. So, of course, art, Norwegian artists, if they really wanted to become painters in an academic sense, had to become international. They had to travel to get an education. Mm. Uh, and you can say other artists also traveled uh, from in both Denmark and Sweden, had uh, established academies. They had uh, scholarships so art the artists could travel to Paris or Rome. Right. So they were probably more oriented towards the South, while the Norwegians, with a few exceptions, stayed mostly in Northern Europe, Germany. Some went to Switzerland, to the Alps, some to Great Britain. But, but mostly it was Germany and Denmark for, for in the early 19th century. And another consequence was, of course, that since we didn't have an established tradition for painting, well, we have, of course, folk painting, rose painting, for, mm -hmm. for instance, uh, which we shouldn't forget, but the academic tradition, uh, which we learned from you know, the international ac European academies, that also meant that this tradition was very fresh mm. in Norway, new. So in a way we could choose what we wanted to concentrate on. We didn't <laughs> have all the luggage. <laughs> and what was close at hand without the aristocratic tradition, etc., was landscape mm. and folk life. Right. So those two genres became dominant for, for a long period mm. in our, our shall we say, movement to create a national identity. Yeah. So, so it had several interesting conse uh, consequences. But of course, if you look at other uh, artistic traditions like literature, we had, of course, a strong tradition, uh, even if most of the Norwegian writers settled uh, in 
Denmark, like Holberg or, yes. or later the, the, all the writers in the circle around Norske Selskav, Norwegian society, like Wessel, mm. Kristen Pram. Well, that's true. I mean, I just find it such a it's such a fascinating time and period when you we talk a lot about building the identity of a country. I mean, to have this kind of, I mean, the national romantic period. It's I mean, it's hard not to talk about it because it was obviously a very defining time and period in our um, history. And uh, from the music side, you know, this is where I think you really shaped the sound of Norway with, you know, with uh, Gring, of course, first of all, and Ole Bull, but also mm-hmm. later on with Halvors and Svensson and Sinding, and I could go on and on. But uh, it's interesting to see the parallel into the art world, um, how that affected, what was the, what were they trying to convey at that point? They wanted to convey either the image or the sound of Norway, yeah. <laughs> at least for the early 19th century, and I think also into the second half of the century. I mean, at one point it switches, uh, and of course, uh, Grieg and Christian Sinding and the others, they live at a time when it switches from a very national focus. But I think, I think music linger, lingers on in their national focus longer than the visual art and and also the the written word, you know, mm-hmm. the authors like Henrik Ibsen, Björnstein and Björnsson. Of course, also Ibsen and Björnsson, they start, interestingly enough, in a national romantic tradition. They write about uh, the sagas, the Vikings, and they also write about folk life, in particular Björnsson. So they mm-hmm. are, in a way, national romantics at an early stage, but they, they switch... Uh, to more contemporary problems like you know gender equality, sexuality, yep. etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that it hap- it, it it happens something at, at that stage. Do you know what changed? Well, I mean, you have, of course, you have. This is again an international movement which is known as naturalism or realism, and mm-hmm. you you're supposed to focus more on human conditions in general and contemporary problems and not be so concerned about national identities. But they also live on and they, they, they sort of, they come back to the surface in the very late 19th century. You have a new mm. national romantic movement at the turn of the century right. with uh, the so-called Lysaki circle, not far from where we sit now exactly, at Fornebu. Exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, included artists like Gerard Münte, mm-hmm. Erik Wernschall, Eilif Pettersen, uh, Heidet Bakker and many others. And for some of them, it was very important to define a Norwegian art. And, yeah. and this was, of course, in the last years up to the dissolution of the union with Sweden. Right. So I, I, I think oh. it's still there yeah. for a long time. I mean, just trying to define what is the Nordic is, is a very difficult task in many ways but if you would give it a go how would you define the nordic as i said you're very fond of big questions yes. uh, this is a very big question <laughs> but i think first of all I, I would like to say it is very interesting to look at the nordic region as a whole mm. the culture as a whole because even if we know that the 19th century writers and artists and composers and so forth strive to create a national identity, the, the culture of the region is so close, it makes much more sense to discuss it as a whole than 
to continue to see it in a national context. Mm. And that's, of course, a challenge because most of the histories of art or music or literature are written from a national point of view. Yes. And you still have that, it's hidden there somewhere, still that aspect of a certain heroism, heroizing your own culture. But, uh, you know, if you take an artist like Johann Christian Dahl, he was born in Bergen mm. in the late 18th century. He was a Danish citizen, or rather Danish-Norwegian. Uh, and then he moved on to Copenhagen to study. And then a few years later, after 1814, he mm. was a Norwegian citizen. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, still a subject to the, to the king of Sweden and Norway. So what was he? And he settled in Germany. <laughs> and that part of Germany, Dresden, was, you know, many of the artists there had actually studied in Copenhagen, like yeah. Caspar David Friedrich. They had been born in, he was born in Greifswald, which was then Swedish territory. <laughs> so the, because the, bo the political borders changed, but the people still live there. Mm. The nature is still there. Mm. So what is Norwegian? What is Scandinavian? What is Nordic? Yeah. Uh, so I think it, it would be, very interesting if we from now on could start to write and discuss Nordic culture uh, as a whole, mm -hmm. rather, than, and to, even to you know look at these artists as Nordic artists rather than national artists, and then what characterizes the Nordic? My gosh, uh, of course, what if we look at you know the 19th century, also a bit earlier, also a bit later, there is a focus on nature. Mm -hmm. Uh, perhaps more in Norway, but also in Finland, Finnish art. Uh, when when that comes into its own in the early mid nineteenth century, they're also interested in depicting their own nature. Actually, f many things that Finnish art starts with a focus on with with, with this project where they are uh, writing about depicting the birds of Finland hmm. uh, hmm. a, a book work in several volumes published by the brothers von Wricht hmm. who were artists among Finland's most important artists in the early 19th century but from there they went to exploring nature and the landscape hmm. so again it starts with a scientific uh, mapping of the country yeah. so, so that's also something we find in, I think in the entire Nordic region hmm. It's also, when we talk about Nordic, it's one word in particular that I think is more and more important these days, and that's the Arctic. And it's oh, yes. hard not to talk <laughs> more about the Arctic. I mean, you I know you have a very, um, what do you say, a, a strong connection to Arctic. You've spent a lot of time there. You've been um, director up in the Arctic. And uh, I wonder, how has the Arctic shaped you? Well, uh I, when I was director of the Art Museum in Norway, I also initiated a Kunsthall mm. in the Arctic on in Longyearbyen, Svalbard, which was a, founded as a branch of the museum in 2015. And the idea was, of course, to focus on the Arctic to to get the art community to to Svalbard, both the international and Norwegian as a meeting spot, uh, because of course there are so many important questions connected to that part of the world right now. There mm -hmm. are the natural resources, and that has all, 
that has always been a focus for the Arctic. Mm-hmm. Ever since the explorers starting to go up there in the 16th century, and that that paved the way for uh, whaling. And the reason why whaling was important was because of the oil, uh, which was which was used in lamps, etc. So it was the oil already then, and you know they they, really, they had big stations to for for the whales when they were killed. They brought yeah. in the whales there, and tapped them for oil, from oil. So this is really the start of what we see today. At one hand, the natural resources that the, we are so depending on, but on the other hand. Uh, the damage that does to our planet, to the to the environment, and you know, you travel there, you look at the Arctic. It's beautiful, covered in ice and snow, but just beneath that ice and snow, there's a lot of garbage, lots of pollution, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And there are some some really interesting artists who have uh, made projects on that, like you know, photographer Mette Trunvall, who did a series. You have. On one hand, you have a beautiful iceberg, and next you see when the snow melts, you see mm. see all the garbage and the pollution. Uh, and and there, there are, of course, a lot of artists, uh, ever since the Romantics and earlier, uh, who have been fascinated by the Arctic. But I think it's the reason why our artists are interest, the, the artists are interested in the Arctic today is because of all the challenges we, ha- we face up there. So it's more important than ever. So much agreed. And... Um it really can be said that Arctic is in so many ways the, the symbol of our time. So it's such a um, important, important point when, as you mentioned, for the environmental purpose, but for geopolitical purposes, it's really the, 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 um, the place to be watched in many ways. And of course, it makes sense that it also is such a big influence for the art, mm. where you also have so many different ways of expressing and uh, conveying messages or building bridges even sometimes. Um but I think the the Arctic. The, I've been there a few times myself, and it is. I mean, the the place itself is just. It's almost hard to describe what mm. it does with you. To mm. me, it was so magnetic. It was so. I just. I never had this feeling anywhere else before, and I don't know whether it's because of the place or just because you know by in yourself. I'm really so far north that mm. I am, if you look at the globe, you're on the top of the world, basically. And But it is a fascinating, fascinating place. And it is a little bit the feeling of being so completely in the hands of nature. You have nothing mm. you should have said or done. It doesn't matter. Um, you cannot um, force your way through something. It's always nature is the first um, force. Mm. And um, I think there must be a lot of interesting expressions coming from the north. Oh, indeed. I mean, look at a work like Glacier by uh, the American pioneer uh, artist John Jonas, Mm. which is inspired by uh, nature on Iceland and also also inspired by Haldor Laxness' novel Under the Glacier, Mm. where the glacier is a threatening force in the background, partly mythical, even magical, partly in nature, uh, and in her video installation, the sound of the glacier <laughs> is there all the time, like some sort of a threat. And it's uh, so, so. And today, of course, that the melting glacier is even more of a symbol for what happens. Uh, Definitely. And I think speaking of sound, I mean, the, we had some talks earlier in the podcast series about how to 
try to find the sound or describe the sound of, for instance, things like the Northern Lights, yes. which is a phenomenon that is so... I mean, you really have to see, feel it in order to really experience the really powerfulness of it. But when you talk about glaciers, I mean, that sound is probably one of the most scary and also heartbreaking sounds I have ever heard. Just when it's uh, particularly when you, not necessarily the melting part, but when it is, well, how do you say it in English? When it's a uh, cardovich, as we say in Norwegian. Uh, I yes. don't even know exactly what the English word for that is, but when parts of it breaks off. Yes, yes. And the kind of the deep, deep sounds, the kind of, you know, it's it's almost like, it, to me, it sounds like a cry for help, you know? And it's just so powerful uh, to see nature being, um, what do you say, not damaged, but changed in such a way. Yes, and, and that that has been, uh, I think, inspired many kind of artists uh, to, to capture the so- different sounds of nature. I mean, we mentioned Joan Jonas Glacier, I also know that the Arctic Symphony Orchestra had a project with capturing the sound of ice that melts. Mm. Uh, so I think this can be, I think this is something that will be more and more relevant with, with uh, what uh, happens in the Arctic. But I mean, the forces of that nature, they have always inspired mankind, I think, because they are so strong. They are something we have to live with and, and in particular the artists are the best i think to to sort of really depict that whether it is in a painting or a video or in words or in music Mm. so speaking of the arctic there is a topic that we definitely need to go into and that's the the sami tradition and um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the expression we can find there i mean the Sami as the indigenous people of, you know, northern Scandinavia, northern Finland, Russia, uh, has been there around for centuries. Uh, and uh, I find their artistic tradition very fascinating. And uh, I'm very happy that after many years of suppression, their voices are again uh, being heard, n- not at least in the arts world, and uh, artists, uh, visual artists, writers have actually been in the forefront of uh, political forefront also uh, to to create a Sami identity, a, lit- a bit, little bit like the Norwegian artists in the 19th century, mm-hmm. uh, but also quite active in uh, the political struggle for a greater degree of Sami autonomy. So we have, for instance, the, the, the Masi group uh, founded in the late 1970s uh, when we had the Alta Kautokaino rebellion and uh, where uh, a group of Sami artists founded this Sami artist group, including Sunova Pearson, Oge Gaup and Britta Mairakat Labba. And they focused on uh, not exclusively, but they also focused on using Sami traditions in their art. Mm. Uh, you know, using Sami material, but also Sami motives, perhaps subjects from mythology, from religion. Mm. Uh, and of course, that was a part of reclaiming a forgotten chapter of their own history and thus creating an identity. Mm. But they were also active politically. An artist like Sunova Pearson, she painted... Uh, 
uh, a draft for one of the earliest drafts of the Sami flag, which was used during the Alta actions. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of this led to, to the establishment of the Sami parliament in right. Norway. In, uh, so, and earlier, of course, because the Sami is a nomadic culture, they are, uh, their arts were very often... Well, a lot of their visual traces are lost, but they were often con- connected to to utility, you know, to, to objects they could use, which they would decorate beautifully with their hands. So they were really proper craftsmen. Uh, but there are also traces of, you know, old buildings, etc. Mm-hmm. So, so they had a great culture. Uh, and of course, an artist, other artists, are very aware of that tradition, even if Sami artists today, they, you know, they work in all, all genres and all aspects. Uh, but I, I, I'm very happy to see that they are now so to the forefront, uh, not only nationally, but also internationally. Uh, they was a part of Documenta a couple of years ago. There is the Valkype exhibition at the Henny Art Center. Uh, and I, I was very happy to... to curate an exhibition on Sami artists at the, uh, the Royal Palace, Queen Sonia's Art Stable a couple of years ago. So a lot of things are happening around Sami art now. That, that's great. It's great and it's really yeah. exciting. Yes. And I think for many, and I will include myself in that, it is also so much to discover, so much oh, exciting, uh, exciting, uh, both expression, but history and so many things that we just don't know. And it's such a pity because it's part of our history as well. It should be a part of our history and mm. our consciousness, definitely. Yeah. Uh, because they build on a distinct tradition, but they are at the same time a part of an international art movement. And, you know, a pioneer like Evie Ox, a mm. uh, great artist... He was as much an international modernist, conceptual artist, based himself on, on installations to a large degree, as he was a Sami artist who based himself also on Sami craftsman traditions. Mm-hmm. So they sort of meet yeah. in, uh, in the traditions meet in Eviok's works and, and also in many other artists. Yeah. One thing that has struck me a little bit when talking to um, some other guest who explained a little bit about the Sami culture. What became quite um, interesting to me is also, you know, they were not really able to express themselves as they wanted usually. So what they did is they put it into the art in form of, for instance, the yoik. You know, mm. that was their way of being able to express themselves. But would you say you can see the same in in um, their artwork as well? That's where they had more, much more free expression. Yes, as I said, of course... Uh, because of the, char- the nomadic character, a lot of the objects are lost, but we have old examples of shaman drums, Runebo Muhammad, where you have symbols. But of course, these symbols were connected to their religion, they were suppressed, their language was suppressed. Mm. Uh, of course, and you know, at the same time as we start to define Norway as a, as a nation, the real colonization begins with the tradesmen who takes advantage of the Sami. They, of course, organized themselves in religious groups like the Lestadian movement, uh, and people started to write down the language. But, you know, in the 20th century, Norwegian government 
forbid the use of the language. The children were not allowed to learn it in school, uh, which was a great tragedy. So this is what I think in, the artists in particular, or, but also academics, etc. But that artists within uh, the, all the different genres, you know, music in uh, in the visual arts, in literature, they are now reclaiming and mm-hmm. and been doing that uh, at least since the 1970s very consciously yeah and it's due time <laughs> it's very very mm. much due time yeah but it's fantastic to hear that uh, uh, you have such a um what is it a c- clear a reasoning for for wanting to bring it out to the world again and i really hope that we will see much 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 more of the savage edition as well of course as the forgotten i would say they use that word forgotten um painters also of the 18, 19th century sorry i mean we see a bit the same in in the music for instance yes. you know how certain composers were just forgotten they were just left uh, out of time and they made a obviously a fantastic contribution in history and mm-hmm. it really defined also the certain road and way it went forward so i do think it's extremely important to get them out in the light again like for instance Peter Balke, who I mean, to say, put it back in the like, he's now, of course, a very well-known name and not uh, unknown anymore. But it is so important to have the people fighting for it, like yourself. Thank you for that. Well, mm-hmm. I think we have uh, we have several artists who, who are important to, to bring, uh, not ba- only back into the limelight, but also out to the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think we, the way that... The history of the arts in Norway has been written. It's been very, from as, a, as from a national point of view, and very much heroizing individual artists, and that very often ends up with us almost worshiping only one artist within uh, each of the arts. You know, we can only have one painter, which is Edward Munch. We can only have one composer, which is Edward Grieg. We can only have one uh, sculptor, which is Gustav Wigland, but we have so many others. Mm. And I think it's, well, it's simply our duty as whether we are artists or curators or historians to reclaim all these artists who are, if not necessarily forgotten, so at least marginalized. I mean, an artist like Peter Balke has, of course, been well known in Norway through large parts of the 20th century. He was pretty much marginalized in his own lifetime. But uh, it is only recently that he has become an artist uh, that belongs to the uh, were to the world. Mm-hmm. And I think I think we have more art artists to offer to the world. I believe so too. And I with your wise words of saying that it is our duty to bring them forth. I will say that that we will continue with. And also I would really like to say thank you so much for coming to my podcast today and for sharing your thoughts and your wisdom on these topics. I really learned so much from you and I really thank you for being here. So thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you, Elberg. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me for The Nordics Unveiled. My name is Elvig Hemsing and I hope you will continue following my next episodes on your favorite podcast platform. The music in the introduction is from Edvard Grieg's Violin Sonata in G Major, Opus 13, with myself on violin and pianist Simon Trapczewski, released on BIS Records. <laughs>